Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week, we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Violence in any form is a cause for concern, but there is something especially heart-wrenching when those who are harmed or those who cause the harm are young. In 2006, then-Mayor R.T. Ryback realized that Minneapolis needed to tackle its rising youth violence rate in a more strategic, coordinated manner. The city created a Youth Violence Prevention Steering Committee, which released its first blueprint for action in 2006. Since then, the city has expanded its youth work in violence prevention. In this podcast, we will talk with Sasha Cotton, Youth Violence Prevention Coordinator for the City of Minneapolis. Sasha will tell us about Group Violence Intervention, GVI, a project she personally manages, as well as a number of other initiatives the city has introduced to address youth violence. And we're so excited to have you with us today, Sasha. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Looking forward to a time to chat. So you do some really amazing work, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But to start with, I'd love to hear about what drew you to youth violence prevention work. Yeah, you know, it is definitely work that I think most of us who do it feel called to. Um, I grew up very close to where we're sitting in the Rondo community of St. Paul and really felt deeply connected to my community. And um, that that is what helped me to stay out of trouble is that my parents actually were living in Atlanta when I was born, but are both from here and um, came back home so that I could really have a network of support and people around me. And we know that that's really what helps young people in particular um, from getting involved in the things that we don't want them to do is knowing that they have those deep connections to community. They have the support they need when they need it. And so I know that my community paid huge dividends um, for me being able to have a career and go to college and um, develop a successful life. And so I wanted to be able to pay that forward. And I also... um, had the pleasure of being a very young mom. And so knowing that I was raising a young African-American man, I felt like it was really important to, um, one, know a lot about this topic because unfortunately they're an overrepresented population, but also to really invest in that community and trying to change the paradigm. It also just gives me an opportunity to spend a lot of time with people um, and different kinds of people, which is a great way to spend a career. That sounds just like a really personal connection to your work. Do you find that that kind of really helps keep you engaged and keep you continuing to driving when it's probably some really challenging work that you do? Yeah, the work is definitely not easy, and at times it can be deeply heart-wrenching, but it is personal. I mean, being from this community and being um, 
a person of color and a, a woman and a person who lives in urban density, the issue of violence is never far away. And so both in my family and in my personal network, we've experienced loss due to violence. And it's a constant fear, I think, that most mothers have in general, but certainly the mothers of black and brown boys. And so um, sometimes you see the faces of the people that you're serving and you see yourself and your loved ones in those faces. And I think that that is very motivating and continues to drive the work for me personally and professionally. So tell us a little bit more about the specifics of your work. It really wasn't until we were accepted into the National Forum on Youth Violence Prevention, which was an, a President Obama administrative um, program out of the Department of Justice, that there was actual money to start to think about programs. And that was just in 2012. And so for the first four to five years of this program, it was really about trying to pull in key players, develop relationships, build some frameworks that everyone could believe in. And so our blueprint, which is our action plan, um, revolves around five key goal areas. And the development of those gave us some structure to really think about policy, program, input, how do people buy into this. And those goals are to provide violent-free social environments. So how do we make sure that when young people are at a faith-based you know, place of worship, at a school, at a park, that those environments allow them to just be kids and to not have to think about the violence in the world? Um, the second goal is to connect young people to caring adults. And so how do we make sure that adults in the lives of young people, and when we say young people, that's sort of big picture, right? That we're thinking about young people more broadly than we have in the past. So even a 25-year-old that you feel like, oh, maybe it's none of my business to ask them how they're doing. It is, you know, like maybe they don't want to talk about it, but it's a good idea if you're an elder or you have some wisdom to pass on to start to build those relationships with people in your neighborhood or the, you know, the kid in the apartment down the hall that moved here from Mankato. You know, there's nothing wrong with asking them, how's he doing? What's going on with you? You know, building those networks. So that's been a really important goal area for us, addressing risk at the very first sign. Um, so not waiting until a young person is on probation or that they've been arrested. When we start to see some of those problematic behaviors in a family or those those red flags, like a young person falling, you know, baby falling out of a window, mm -hmm. that should set up some red flags for the city to think about how do we support that family versus waiting until that kid is, you know, acting aggressively in middle school, restoring young people who have gone down the wrong path. And so historically, people have thought about that as a re-entry goal. And we really say, eh, maybe, you know, it's re-entry in a lot of different ways. So it's not just re-entry from incarceration, but we know that people feel outside of community for a variety of ways or a variety of reasons. So it really is trying to pull people back onto the path of feeling connected. And so that could be because they've been displaced due to incarceration or homelessness or foster care placements, but it could also be because their mental health has presented a crisis where they don't feel connected to the community or they've just recently moved to the Twin Cities and they don't know quite how to plug in. So how do we make our communities accessible and friendly and pull people in no matter what their circumstances are? So meeting people where they are and helping them feel connected. And then our fifth goal is protecting children and young people from violence in the community. And that really does speak to a partnership with law enforcement and other kinds of agencies that can help us make sure that when young people are facing challenges, or communities in general are facing challenges around safety that law enforcement or fire or child protection have the best of the evidence-based practice that there is to offer to help intervene in a way that does the least harm. And so 
I think when we stand on those five key goal areas, it helps us to see really clearly the kind of work that we want to be doing in community. Our slogan with that work is really keeping people safe, alive, and free. And it really looks at a harm reduction model and saying, if we can keep people safe, alive, and free, then the possibilities are endless. But if we lose them to prison, if we lose them to caskets, what I call caskets and incarceration, then we lose those opportunities for all of the potential that they have on the table. And so we're doing one-to-one services. Um, it is nuanced in that all of our staff are formerly gang-involved people themselves. And we wanted to make sure that families had a resource to tap into because they're often the first people to know that their kids are in trouble. And so often they have to wait until their kid does something wrong criminally to get on probation or to get arrested before an intervention is offered. And you, you have parents, especially of young adults, who are pulling their hair out because they know that their kid is approaching a crisis and they really don't have any place to turn. And so group violence intervention strategy is really trying to provide that kind of a resource and community. And so we're offering immediate intervention services to safe house people if they want it, and then one-to-one services to walk them through how they change their lives. And this is not about saying you're a bad person or you can't hang with these people anymore, but it really is about empowering people to make better and different choices about their own lives. I really appreciated what you were saying about former gang members helping to do a lot of the work. Some of our work is inside of correctional facilities, and so we get to see firsthand the people who have committed crimes and been prosecuted for it, just the skills and strengths and abilities that they have, and we hear from them so much of wanting to really find an opportunity to give back once they rejoin us in the community. And there's oftentimes not a lot of places for people with criminal records um, or past violence to really plug in. And so I think that that's so really powerful that your model is set up that way. Yeah, I mean, we're following the model of John Jay College and the National Network of Safe Communities. And so they've been doing this work nationally for about 20 years. And of course, it's grown and adapted over the years. And in Minneapolis, we've had to, you know, do it the Minneapolis way. Um, And I know that there are partners in St. Paul who are also thinking about this as a strategy. But I think bringing people who have been most affected by the violence, who have every reason and every experience to compel someone that this is not the route to go, is sort of common sense. It's an opportunity that we haven't always thought about. Um, But one of the the things that we also talk about in this work, particularly with um, this particular project, is that we don't throw people away. Mm -hmm. And so if people always have value and worth, then how do we take their lived experiences and apply it so that they can contribute in a way that's meaningful and actually impacts people? And I think that that is um, a bedrock of what we're trying to do with the Office of Violence Prevention and what historically we've done with the violence prevention work at the city. And that just feels like it connects so well with what you were saying earlier about community and connection and that it really will take the entire community to come together to reduce violence. Absolutely. Um, I have been a long time proponent of saying that really what we're talking about in a lot of communities that are deeply impacted by violence are core needs not being met and their core needs that historically were met by community and extended family. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have that, for example, my walking from my home to my high school, I had to pass six or seven relatives' homes. I probably walked past six or seven church members or community members' 
you know, driving past me. And so the opportunity to misbehave, but also the incentive to do the right thing was inherent. And I knew that people had expectations and I knew that people cared deeply about my success. And that is something that so many of our young people are missing because of this individualized society that we've developed. And so at the core of the programs that I think we're developing is that replacement or reinvigoration of those kinds of networks that we don't throw our family away we don't throw our community away even when you make mistakes there's always a place for you here you have to stand in the face of your consequences right my parents were not going to let me off the hook I had a baby at 18 they were like this is your baby we love you we will help you but this is your baby and I think that that kind of responsibility that compassionate accountability um, is what we're really trying to replicate and model for young people who have maybe made some decisions that are not what we'd want for them to do. But as we're trying to get them back on track, it has to be done from a place of love and compassion and not um, finger wagging and you know ridicule. And so what we talk about is trying to give people new tools in their toolbox. If you've only seen people resolve conflict by using violence, then it sort of seems like a natural phenomenon. And particularly if no one's telling you that that is not how they solve their problems, you begin to develop a narrative that that's how everyone solves their problems. So in my background and in some of the work that we do around domestic violence, it's really about engaging men because we know that most people who batter are men, but most men don't batter. But batters think that all men batter. Mm -hmm. So they are under this misconception that, oh, my brother, when him and his girlfriend get into a fight, I'm sure he smacks her. And my pastor, I'm sure he's choked his wife once or twice when she's gotten out of line, right? And so having men say, we don't do that here. We don't do that at this church, in this neighborhood, at this synagogue. We don't do that. The men in this community don't, don't do that. And giving them new skills and techniques to solve problems that it's okay to walk away. It doesn't compromise your manhood to say, I need to take a break. It's okay to express your emotions in a way that is not hostile. And to say, this hurts me when you do this. And not to retaliate with physical aggression because you've been hurt. Giving people permission sometimes to do those things and then the skill set to back it up can change things in a way that we don't always think is possible. We know that most of the young men who we serve in gangs and groups are our most violent offenders in the city. Had an incident where violence was a very significant factor before the age of five. And so if we could prevent those kinds of circumstances, for example, children who fall out of windows, the city is starting to think about these things that children who fall out of windows almost always end up having precarious outcomes at 11, 12, 15, 16. When children fall out of windows, it's usually due to negligence because someone is not paying attention to the needs of that child so much so that they were able to get to a window and fall out of it. What kind of prevention services are we providing to those families when their child falls out of a window? Aside from the medical care necessary for the child, what other work are we doing not to consequence that family, but to support them? Because obviously there's something going on there. And so it's those kinds of like whole community strategies that I think we're really in the health department thinking about in a more critical way than we have in the past. You're talking about some really phenomenal programming. And so I'd love it if we could take kind of a step back and talk about some of the things that got the program to where it is today, just to help it seem more manageable to our listeners. I think a couple of things have really motivated the city to think about the work. 
a lot of it is community, right? That community is standing together and saying, the violence is intolerable. We want things to change. I think that there's also been a national shift towards thinking about the fact that we can't police our way out of some of these problems. And so what other solutions are there that exist? And in the public health framework, which is the way that we do our work in the Minneapolis Department of Health, we are really thinking about how do we include everyone, right? Because policing is a part of it, but it shouldn't be the only solution. And so if it's not the only solution, where do the other solutions exist? And part of that is really deeply deeply rooted in partnerships. And so I think one of the things that the city started doing very early in the process was trying to pull in key stakeholders. And at that time, we were thinking pretty exclusively about young people. So how does the city work well with a school district? How does the city work well with parks and recreation? How do they work well with neighborhood and community organizations and the faith-based communities to make sure that the places that young people are are in the best position to provide services that prevent those young people from being involved with violence. So tell us a little bit about some of the successes that you've had with all of this phenomenal programming. You know, we're excited about a variety of the projects that we're doing. I think one of the programs that we've seen a a lot of success with is our Inspiring Youth Program, which is a pre, you could call it a pre-probation program um, for young people. Myself and one of my colleagues have both worked in juvenile delinquency programs. And one of the things that, and I've mentioned it before, is that families and young people um, oftentimes can see the writing on the wall that, you know, hey, my kid is struggling, you know, maybe I'm a single mom, or we're both, you know, me and my partner are both working a lot, and we're just not able to give our kid what they need. And we don't want to wait until they're on probation, because what we know is when kids go into juvenile probation, it's like, Everything gets on them. Mental health services and group therapy and, you know, do you need a bachelor school program? But families shouldn't have to have a child adjudicated delinquent to get those kinds of services. And so Inspiring Youth is one of the programs I think we're most proud of because it allows parents and families to say, we've met a crossroad, we need help. And for school resource officers and school counselors and police officers who are engaged with families to say, hey, we've got something that we could offer you that looks kind of like mentorship and kind of like case management. It's going to build a relationship with your young person that makes them feel valued, but also helps them to look critically at the decisions and choices that they're making, helps them to look at, hey, you're truant. You're not going to school. Why? It's not just because you don't want to. I mean, you know, that may be a part of it, but there's a reason you don't want to be there. Are you underachieving? Is there an educational gap that you need help with? Is the school not a good fit? Do you feel underappreciated at that school? Someone who can really advocate for that young person in the building. And so I think that is one of our juvenile programs that we feel really good about being able to offer because it's so prevention oriented that instead of waiting for young people to trip the wire and go into the system, we're able to offer things that prevent them from ever going down that road. Um, I think that in our group violence intervention strategy, we are so impressed at the level of commitment that some of our young men have really invested in changing their lives. We've only been doing that work for about two years now, but some of the young men, one of the successes I would say is that of the 125 young men that we've served with the group violence intervention strategy, and these are primarily young men who are deeply involved with gangs and guns, who are you know, at the root of a lot of the violence, when we analyze it, about 60% of the violence in Minneapolis is gang involved or group involved, Mm -hmm. 
who have changed their lives and who have committed to changing. We've only lost one young man to homicide, um, which is tragic, and I hate to ever say only, but of 120 young men who are at highest risk by a lot of standards for being a victim or a perpetrator of a shooting, that we've only lost one um, feels like we've achieved something, that those are young men whose lives might have been lost, but not for doing this work. And so to have young men who are at the high radar of law enforcement, really on a trajectory that looked like they were headed to prison or to, you know, Mm -hmm. death now, you know, looking at buying homes in their community and working full time and being civically engaged with our community work group that focuses on this project. It's amazing to see these young men come full circle and to really optimize the potential that they've always had by just having the right people in their lives who are pushing them along and showing them that they can and deserve better than what they were offering themselves. So I think every young person who we can prevent from being involved in a shooting as a victim or a perpetrator is a success story. And so how do your participants come to you like how do you know like who who to work with especially in the the early on prevention programming where they haven't necessarily like tripped something in the criminal justice system we work very closely with our schools on our inspiring youth program Um, our hospital-based intervention program where we offer a bedside intervention for people who come into the hospital with a shooting wound or a stab wound or other violent assault. Obviously, that is an unfortunate self-referral, but every young person under the age of 30 who comes to HCMC or North Memorial is going to get a bedside intervention from our staff. And that is another way that we recruit people into our programs because, you know, the relatability and the vulnerability that you have when you're, you know, experiencing something like that makes it sometimes the right time Mm -hmm. to hear that message of change. And so there's a wide range of programs and there's a wide range of ways that we get people to the table. Mm -hmm. But I think we're trying our best to be very nimble and be responsive to the populations that we know need our services. So I wonder if you can share with us kind of a success story that makes you just feel like, yes, like I am doing phenomenal things in the world. Oh, man. So when I think about success stories, I never name names. Mm -hmm. But we do have one client that we're working with who is buying a home in North Minneapolis. And that is so exciting to us. He has stayed off the radar for a really long time as it pertains to the violence. And so that brings us great joy. Um, We also have a number of young men who are in the process of developing business models. And so... We're so focused on trying to meet people where they are, and that means true advocacy. So really trying to listen and hear what people are asking for and not tell them what they should want. And so what we've heard from some of our young men is, yep, I've been involved in a gang lifestyle. I've sold drugs, so I've been an entrepreneur. And the only way that I'm going to change my lifestyle is to have a legitimate business as an entrepreneur. And so connecting them with other entrepreneurs and community, and in helping them begin to see an active work plan come together to start a business is an amazing measure of success. But it's no more successful than the man who says, you know, I just really like retail and I'd love to work at like a shoe store. Like I'd love to sell sneakers because I love sneakers. And if that's really what he's about and that's what he wants to do, then we are equally excited to help him get a job at Foot Locker, right? Mm -hmm. Or the Nike store. And so success is measured 
um, in so many different kinds of ways for the population that we serve and really is so very centrally focused on what the client's measure of success is and not us imposing what we think success should look like. For us, success looks like staying alive, staying safe, staying free, not going back to prison because then the possibilities are endless. And that's got to be really empowering to your participants to allow them to really be thinking about what success means to them instead of being told, here's what you need to do to be successful, that there's the ownership then of getting to think, what is success? Like, what can I be? Well, you know, we want people to dream big. Um, Obviously, we're always looking at police data and we're looking at homicide rates and we're looking at violence rates and shooting rates. And when we see those things spike, you know, it, it causes us to think proactively and reactively. So what are we not doing right? How could we be more directly involved with something, you know, we're seeing some spikes in violence in our East African community. And so we're trying to be really responsive with how can we work with the groups and gangs in those communities. And that's not going to look exactly the same as it does in the African-American community. But I think trying to be um, human focused and human um, connected is our greatest asset. So in April, the city of Minneapolis participated in the fifth annual National Youth Violence Prevention Week, where it sounds like there was a lot of great events, like a pop-up live community artist recording sessions, Hands Without Guns Youth Talent Showcase. Tell us a little bit more about that event. Oh, YVP Week, Youth Violence Prevention Week, is like my favorite week. It is also my most exhausting week, because we have events like every single day for 10 days. But it is a great way to really highlight the fact that most of our young people are making the right choices and that they want to do the right thing. And even the ones who maybe have done things that we don't like um, can always be pulled back into the fold. And so it really is about trying to provide activities and focus on goal one of providing those violent-free social environments for young people to come together to, yes, talk about how violence affects them and impacts their lives and for us to hear from them about the kinds of solutions that they want, but it's also a time to celebrate Mm -hmm. and recognize that we have a plethora of young people who are doing amazing things. And so we annually have done two core events, which is our conference called Bridges to Manhood, which focuses on young men and boys of color, ages 12 to 24. We bring them together in an institution of higher learning. So we've been at both the University of Minnesota and at MCTC, Minneapolis Community College, Um, Over the last five years, we've hosted anywhere from 100 to 200 young men. Um, And it's a day that young men just get to love on each other and to have elders from their communities come and speak life into them um, and really think again about that endless potential. And so we really feel like endless potential is the answer to violence prevention, right? That when young people feel like they have value and worth and they're on a trajectory that they feel like is successful, they are less inclined to pick up a gun. They are less inclined to be involved with gangs because they have a road. And so that's what Bridges to Manhood is really about. It's about bridging the gap generationally between older men of color and younger men of color. It's about bridging that educational gap to say, see yourself on a college campus. This could be a place for you to go to school to see yourself visually being here. So we love that event. It's become a hallmark. And we, even though it's Minneapolis Center, we draw young men from across the metro. And then we do a girls' symposium in partnership with Minneapolis Parks and Rec, which is a 
similar focus, but done a little differently. We know that young women are often dealing with such high levels of stress and that how their stress shows up where male stress often shows up as aggression and anger that is pushed externally, right? So they fight, they shoot, they have conflict. Girls tend to turn on themselves and that toxicity starts to eat them up. And so we really focus with our young women on self-care. So we do yoga and we do a lot of um, focus on diet and exercise and how can you focus your energy to be more positive and when bad things happen what do you do to take care of yourself because we know that young people live in communities where violence happens on a regular basis and they can't just tune it out but what can they do to recenter and stay focused and so we've done that um, the last three years and look forward to continuing that in partnership with Parks and Rec and then we take open applications from community members who have an idea, you know, so it's like, what do you think could help? And so we see everything this year from events that are faith-based that focus on clergy committing to meeting with young people to talk about the violence in community and to really share ideas about how to mitigate that violence. And then they split up and did like three on three basketball, right? So it was like an amazing balance of really intentional conversation, but also that relationship building that comes from team sports and just like burning off some steam. We saw a heavy use of, of interest in the arts. So we had the hands without, um, was it hands without weapons? I'm always like twisting and turning for the names because there's so many of them, but we had a talent show in partnership with Protect Minnesota that was really focused on young people doing performing arts that were focused on violence prevention. So we had young people who were dancing and spoken word and young people who are rap artists who all came together to do work around messages that focused on violence prevention, which was so cool. Like, um, you know, just an amazing evening. And then there was a young lady who was on America's Got Talent named Flo J, who we were able to compel to come to the Twin Cities. And her message is all about anti-violence. Unfortunately, her father was murdered before she was born um, due to violence. And so as a an artist, her whole focus has been on changing the narrative. And particularly in hip hop, where we know sometimes the messages can be focused on perpetration of violence, she's really trying to change the narrative to say, like, put the guns down. So she was our highlight for that event. And um, it was really cool to see the young people locally engage with her. So the wide range of activities, I think, gives some everything, there's something for everyone and a way for everyone to um, come out and participate in one of the activities and learn a little bit more about what we're doing across the year in the city, but also just to tap into connecting with their neighbors and other people who care about the issue. We're looking forward to our 2020 Youth Violence Prevention Week, and we just look forward to continuing to do those and other activities in the years to come. My direct phone number, if people have questions about the office or any of the work that we're doing, is 612-673-2729. Again, that's 612-673-2729. And you can feel free to call me directly with any questions you have about the office or about any of the programs that we have. And if I don't have the answers, I'll be happy to connect you to someone who does. Sasha, thank you so much for all of your time here with us and all of the work that you're doing. It's been a true honor to get to listen to your story and to hear a little bit about the work that you do. And thank you so much for being a phenomenal presence in this work. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to meet you and to be here with you at the table. Shortly after recording this interview, Sasha received a promotion to become the director of Minneapolis's newly created Office of Violence Prevention. We're thrilled to have Sasha in this role and look forward to continued partnerships with her. 
Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, extraordinary people speaking truth to power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or give us a call at 651 917 0383.